simply says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And 2 Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. Ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. What a wonderful promise that is, but still... There is a promise, all of God, most of God's promises. Now, there are some unconditional promises that God has for us, but most of God's promises are conditional. He says, I will if, and we need to recognize that. We're expecting a lot of time for God to fulfill his promise to us without us first fulfilling our obligations to God. And we do have obligations to God. We did speak a little last week, I think it was, on what we're to glorify God with and what portion of us is born again, which is the spirit or the life principle or the dominating factor in our life, which is the spirit. It fell, of course, when Adam sinned, and it became a spirit of man. But Jesus came. Hallelujah. And with this, we have a chance for the new birth or to... Uh, have our spirits born again. But this did not regenerate our bodies. This did not regenerate our minds. They are to be taken captive. They are to be placed under the domination of the spirit which is born again. And this is not an overnight happening. And this is something that creates a problem sometimes in our life. We have said and asked the question last Sunday morning, I think it was, that have you ever been in a service where you were really glorifying God and the presence of God was all over you, and yet you found your mind was wandering somewhere else. And if we're not right, we'll careful, we'll get a little guilty about that and think, well, we just was putting on, we was hypocritical. So that's not the case. The spirit which is born again always glorifies God. It always does this. And you can be doing that and your mind has not been taken captive by that. And then... There's times when your body just simply wants to walk and wonder. Now, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the body. We need to let this mind be in us. That was in Christ Jesus. That's an act of will. In other words, that uh, creative power which is in us, the power of the Holy Ghost gives us the abilities to bring our minds, our souls, the soulish part of us, and our bodies under subjection to that. But it is a fight. We have enlisted in a war. It's more than just a little skirmish. It's a war to be able to bring our complete being under subjection to that which indwells us, which is holy. But we have ceased to be our own property. Have you ever thought about that? We really have ceased. When we were born of God, we was bought with a price. Jesus paid a supreme price for us. He paid it on Calvary. But that was just the finale, grand finale of it. He paid it almost from the time he was birthed into this world. He began paying a price for our souls to liberate us 
and bring us again into communion with God. And the writer, Apostle Paul, is very careful to tell us that we are bought with a price. In other words, we cease to be our own property. We belong to him who bought us. And maybe we haven't really ever seen the value or the privilege of being the property of somebody else. But if we think just a little bit, sometimes the person that we belong to is responsible for our well-being. So sometimes when it gets rough and sometimes when it gets lonely, we've got to imagine that God is responsible. He purchased us. We belong to him. So that makes him responsible for our well-being. The writer in the books uh, said that we can view it in a way that a loving wife sees it. She's not her own. She gave herself away one day, and you have to ask the question, did she cry when she surrendered herself to become her husband's? Did she request a funeral march to be played at the wedding? You'd have to say absolutely not. It was probably one of the happiest occasions in her life. In other words, she was not her own anymore, but she never had any regrets that she relinquished herself to her husband and rest and happiness had been found in her husband and she was glad to be his property. And you can turn that right around and find that in Jesus. We give ourselves to Christ. And once we give ourselves to Christ, we should not want to wish it any other way. He purchased us and we realize that and we are his property and we do belong to him. And so if we belong to somebody else, wouldn't you imagine that we ought to take care in what we do, take care of our thoughts and take care of our actions, now, if we belong to ourselves, we might experiment with false doctrines. We might allow envy and malice and strife and divisions to alienate us from God and from our brothers and from our sisters. We might allow garbage of this world to fill our minds if we belong to ourselves. But once we have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to him. And, of course, belonging to him, his laws are to us that we must not do those things. They must not be in our mind. They must, must not be in our heart. They must not be fulfilled. We have no right to injure that which doesn't belong to us. Our bodies belong to him. You hear a lot of people say, well, I'll do this if I feel like it. Well, we're not left that privilege if we belong to God. You see, our bodies should be brought under subjection to the Lord, and the Bible says, clap your hands, all ye people. Well, I don't feel like clapping your, my hand. Old flesh never feels like doing anything that God wants it to do. So there again is worshiping God with our spirit, but our bodies is refusing to cooperate, and we're doing nothing about it. We're simply just sitting there and making excuses for us not doing this and not doing that or not doing something else. When we lift our hands to Almighty God, we're worshiping Him. Flesh don't want to do that. But that which indwells us, we belong to Him. And at His command, we ought to worship Him and lift up holy hands to Him and speak love concerning Him and to Him. That's bringing our bodies under subjection. That's bringing that unregenerate body of ours under control of that divinity which indwells us. And we ought to realize how much more freedom we would have if we'd bring our mind under subjection to that spirit and our bodies and make it do some of the things it don't want to do. 
You see, if we wait for us to feel like doing something, very seldom body is going to cooperate with spirit. And very seldom is mind going to cooperate with spirit. It's only when that overwhelming power takes control and we say, flesh, you will do it. Because the spirit inside demands us to do it. And a lot of times we say, well, I'll do it when God tells me to do it. And we fail to realize this Bible is full of instructions that God's already told us. Why should God give a new commandment when we've never fulfilled very few of those he has given us? He's not going to just come down and speak directly to you and say, I want you to do this, that, and something else when it's already been written in his word. That should be your guideline. That should be your pattern. That should be what you're responsible for in your life. And so our bodies are really important to God. Really important to God. And what we feed our minds is what you eat is what you are. Amen. Amen. What you eat naturally is what you are. And what you eat spiritually is what you are. Feed yourself on false doctrines and all of this stuff, and feed yourself on all of this, and you become a half-hearted Christian. But you belong to God. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, with a man with a talent, did he have a right to hide that talent in the earth? And the question, the answer is this, he would have had if it had been his. He would have had a right to do whatever he wanted to with that talent if it belonged to him. But neither the talent nor the napkin belonged to him, so he had no right because the spirit, the master, had already spoken to him and gave it to him and said, told him what he wanted, what he wanted him to do with it. And so the man actually had no right to hide the talent in the earth because it belonged to his master. It had been entrusted to him as a as a steward. And it been told him to invest for gain. That is the literal translation of that scripture when he says, gives him that talent and says, invest that for gain. In other words, put it to some use. And of course, then the man took it, thought maybe he could do with it as he wanted to. And that's why the Apostle Paul is writing to us here and says, you're bought with a price, you're not your own. And we should act like we are not our own. Find out what our master wants of us. Find out what the requirements are in our life. And then bring mind under control of that. And then bring body under control of that. A lot of blessings have been missed. Because we're waiting for something supernatural to lift us up above the heavens somewhere and make us do something we don't want to do. And this never happens. It's just one spirit can make us do something we don't want to do, and that's the spirit of the devil. When we get in possession of that, he'll make us do what we don't want to do. But God never makes us do what we don't want to do. Why doesn't he do that? Because he would be transgressing his own law moving against the will of humanity. And he has left us with a born-again spirit and told us to bring that mind under subjection and bring this body under subjection. And he's telling us why we should do that, because we belong to him. We have no right to let the abilities that God has entrusted to us go to waste. Somebody says, well, I don't have any. I really feel sorry for you if you don't. I mean, that makes you a moron of some type, and I know you're not a moron. I know you have abilities to do something. Yes. Yes. Amen. 
And if you don't have, God can give them to you. And you have abilities to do something, and we have no right to waste our time and our energies given us by the Lord to the satisfaction of our own self, seeing we belong to Him. Now, that's not to say that you've got to be a super saint. That's not to say that all your time has to be spent fasting and prayer and a uh, long, sour face and a holier than thou look. That's not saying that at all. That's just saying God has required of us some things. He allows us to enjoy life. But how can you really enjoy life outside of Jesus? That is this last. How can you have any peace outside of him and joy outside of him? It's literally impossible for us to do that. So weigh the abilities that God has given you. What has he given you? Well, he's given you two hands. He's given you a voice. He's given you two feet. He's given you two hands. He's given you strength. He's given you abilities. All of this you have. Energies given you and supplied by God. He expects to be used for him. Amen. Our actions ought to be guarded so that sin wouldn't destroy our testimony. <clears throat> well, what is our testimony? We have a testimony service. Is that our testimony? I mean, when we stand, and that's fine. That's a praise to God. That's not a testimony to God. That's a praise to God. You're adoring God. Your testimony is when you walk out that door. And you either make a good one or you make a bad one. It's the impression that you leave upon the outside world. That's your testimony. That doesn't mean you're going to always please them. But they are going to know who you are and what you stand for and what you believe. And they are going to see in you consistency. You know, the thing that always attracted humanity to Jesus Christ was his consistency was his ability to live a consistent life regardless of the circumstances he was in. He was never inconsistent. And the world looks for consistency in salvation. They know they'll never find it in religion. Religion is inconsistent. The devil's the one that originated religion. But God is the one who provided salvation. And Jesus Christ was always consistent. He was consistent in his love he had the ability to love as much those who didn't love him or hated him as much as he loved those who was close to him. He had the consistency to believe the same in the valley as he had on the mountaintop. And so our testimony is not here. Our testimony is when we walk out the door and the consistency in the life we live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Letting individuals know that this life here, this body and this mind is not yours. You have brought it under subjection of that which has been born of the Spirit of God. And the body should glorify God by its temperance. In other words, by its self-control. I want to say this, not being regenerated and your body not suffering any change at all, your body is going to want to eat and drink and do those things which are not convenient. It's going to want to overindulge. And it's up to us, through the Spirit of God, to bring all of this, all of this under subjection, yeah. under control. That's a temperance is control. And our body can glorify God by self-control. 
That's the inabilities to bring it under subjection of the Spirit. Everything that's got to do with flesh, eating, drinking, sleeping, pleasure, should be pleasing to Him. Now, God doesn't want us to be someplace uh, where we can't enjoy this world and can't enjoy some of the things He's placed in this world. But He does not want this pleasure to be the predominant thing in our life. In other words, whenever God is speaking to us and the Spirit is pleading with us, it's up to us to bring these bodily appetites under control and this mind under control and find out what God is wanting for us. Sometimes we work every, every morning with our life all planned out. The mind dictates where it, what it wants to do and the body is under control of the mind and the Spirit has very little to do with our everyday life. About the only time the Spirit has much to do with us I'm saying us, and we ought to be challenged by this, is just about what time we're in church in the house of God. Then we try desperately to bring that spirit to be the predominant factor in our life, and it's not used to it, and the body and the mind is not used to being subjected to it, so sometimes we have a difficult time even doing that. So the body ought to glorify God in its self-control, in its temperance. First Corinthians will tell us that. Wheresoever, whether wherefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. We ought to glorify God by being industrious. If we have used our bodies in the past to work for the devil, and if we have given him everything we've had, we should now make these bodies work for God. Now, I've often said that I made the devil a good tool. I give him everything I had, my body, my strength, my whole mind, and he was taking it. He was eliminating my abilities to do anything. He was destroying my body by sickness and by diseases and by overindulgence and alcohol and all of this. And I was giving him, I, I'd done it right, I'd done it hard. And that's why I say whenever I came to Christ, I owe him just as much or more than I give the devil. Amen. I owe him my life. Amen. I owe him my physical strength. I owe him my feet to walk in the pathway of righteousness. I owe him my hands to be an extension of his hand. I owe him my mind to think wonderful thoughts of God. I owe him this tongue to speak and form words that God would want me to speak. I owe him this voice that gives utterance to all of this. I owe him my physical strength. I owe him some times of intercessory prayer. Oh, in times when you would just get under the influence of prayer and you would perspire heavily and your body would become weary and tired, I owe that to him. I gave it to the devil without any question whatsoever. And he took it and he destroyed my body. God has taken it and as he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He had no reason to, but he did. So we need to be a little industrious about God. You know, that's, that's our problem, and I, I think we're all going to agree with that. When it comes to doing anything spiritual, we become a little bit lazy. Spiritually, we become a little bit lazy. We have all types of energy for anything else. But when it comes to doing something for God in God's house, we become a little bit spiritually lazy. We need to recognize that God is wanting from us, our bodies, our strength, to do something for Him. We give him almost, give the devil almost everything we have. So if your feet carried you into worldly places, let them carry you into God's house. Now I'm going to tell you something. Now you might not have been like that, but when I was in sin, I would run around and be out till three or four o'clock in the morning, and I would get up 
And I'd do a full day's work. And do you think I'd be too tired to go out and do it again? No. Be right ready to go out and do it again. Amen. All right. And so would you. Nothing stood in the way of your pleasure. Now then, what about if it took you to those places and you went and your body was tired and your mind was weary? What about God's house? A little bad cold didn't keep you from going there. A little bit of touch of the flu didn't keep you from going there. You went. Hallelujah. That's what God is expecting out of us. What did you give out there? He wants it. He wants it. Amen. All right. Well, we let that <laughs> we let that lay where it is. If your eyes have been the channel of lust and evil, then let them be the channel of purity that's gained from God's word. I don't know whether anybody in here has ever been a time when you picked up those off-color books and jokes and what have you, and man, your eyes just feasted on those. And you just enjoyed those. And then all at once, you become a Christian. Well, your eyes ought to enjoy the Word of God, just Amen. like it did those things. You change, see. There's something changed. And what you gave then ought to be God's. It's, it's not yours anymore. It's God. And the tongue that cursed and practiced vile language. How many in here has ever cursed? <laughs> I wouldn't want you to identify yourself like that, but I mean, it wasn't anything. For something to go wrong, for you to just take and use God's... I mean, you could just, in your everyday language, and talk. You'd just use God's name in vain and practice by language. Now then, if you could do that with a snap of a finger, what's wrong with giving God honor and praise with that very same tongue, with having, having been knocked down with a sledgehammer? Amen. I can understand why you might, if you hit your finger, you might curse a little bit, but a lot of us have done it for no reason at all. It became part of our everyday language because that was us, and we was in control of us, and that tongue was in control of us. And we just speak God's name in vain, just off color, just in our everyday talk. As somebody said, it's a weak mind trying to get, express itself verbally, <laughs> forcibly. <laughs> And maybe that's what it was. But by the same token, it didn't take very little for us to do that. But now we have become gods. And it seems like it just has to take a great move of God's Spirit to ever get a noise out of us. That's right. That's right. Amen. We some way seem like it, we found it to be holy to be silent. And if that tongue uh, uh, shouted vile language and talked that, it ought to emit, uh, ought to emit praises to God by singing and by uplifting of God's hands and just by verbally ble uh, blessing God with our words because we are not alone. And if there's anything God loves, He loves praise. He don't want you to feel like it necessarily. He likes it when you don't. And you still worship Him and you still praise Him. He loves that. Why does He do that? Because He knows that something higher has taken control of everything you've got. His spirit has taken control of that which it lives in. Our bodies are God's home. Yes, yes, sure. Amen. And a man's home is the center of all that he does and all that he has. And so what would be wrong with having the center of everything God has and does is the church. Used to be the church was the hub of any 
activity. It used to be. I mean, any activity in a community, the church was the hub of it. We've lost that anymore. It's not the hub of very much. Very, not too much sinners from our church. We all seem to go different directions and do our own thing, and the community is unmindful of the activities of the church a lot of times, but yet this is God's dwelling place. And the center of everything ought to be the church because God actually has created the hills and put the minerals and what have you and the beauty out there all for his people. That's what he did it for. And we belong to God. We're his house. Now, the question is asked, what man would not defend his home from an invader? And we all would. If we could at all, somebody break into our home and threaten those that are close to us, we'd give our life to protect them. And since the church is God's home, since the church is where God dwells, wouldn't he rise up and defend it? He wouldn't allow the powers of hell just to come in without raising a defense against it. And that's why he came and gave us his spirit. That's our defense against the outside world. All right, enough of that. Let's go down here with the 2 Corinthians 6.16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Now, the Apostle Paul, I feel like, now, you've got to realize when you're sitting there listening to the Apostle Paul, you've got to realize some of the type, some of the straits he was in. He was a man, and some of the times Paul was writing, his heart was overwhelmed with love and compassion for his people, and you can feel that. And other times there's anger inside the Apostle Paul, not against the people, but against the devil and the people for allowing the devil to have his way in their life. And then sometimes there's exasperation in the voice of Paul, and you can see all of this in his writings. If you realize he's human, that he wasn't a super saint, he was just like us, filled with the presence of God with a special, special anointing upon him, which we can have. But the Apostle Paul was writing here and asking questions in complete exasperation. Now he's doing that simply because he had taught these individuals. They should have known better than what they were doing. And he's asking them a question, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, in other words, because of that, because of the fact that I'm dwelling in you, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. And Paul is actually saying, what is the agreement? In other words, what? In other words, they were called out from this temple worship and called out of a lot of things that were doing, and yet he finds them actually being embedded in those things again. And he's telling us that now there's got to be some agreement in there. What part do you have with them? What language do you speak that they speak? What have you got to say that would be of interest to them? And what have they got to say that would be of interest to you? And being unequally yoked, you have to observe three things here that the Apostle Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say that there's an essential difference between those who are truly and soundly converted and filled with God's Spirit and those who are not. 
Number one, God was trying to make them see that they are different. Paul was trying to make them see they are different from those individuals that they're trying to have communion and fellowship with and rub shoulders with and still have something in common. They're different. Paul's trying to tell them that. And uh, the line of difference is very broad. A lot broader than we'd like to realize, and it's very conspicuous, or at least it should be. And the difference is the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. Now, when we have God, we have the righteousness of Christ. We ought not do despite to that. We ought to realize it is his righteousness. And when we have that and his righteousness, there is a vast difference between righteousness. Now, righteousness is simply right standing with God. And so there's a difference between those who have a right standing with God and those who have a wrong standing in God. And he said, I want you to realize there's this much difference between you who are righteous and who are unrighteousness. And then he says the difference is the difference between light and darkness. Right. That's quite a broad statement, isn't it? To tell spirit-filled people that they were different from those other individuals out there, those temple worshipers, the difference was between daylight and dark. And how many know the difference between daylight and dark? So that is the difference between them, and that's the difference between us today. And then to solidify it, Paul says, the difference is the difference between Christ and Satan. That's quite a difference. He, in other words, he said, what concord or what agreement hath Christ with Belial? In other words, what could they talk about? Everything that Christ is for, Satan is against. Right. Everything that Christ is trying to build up, Satan is trying to tear down. And so he said, what, 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 is, what do you really got in common is what he's trying to say. And he said the difference is the difference between faith and infidelity. In other words, what part or what agreement has he that believeth with an infidel. Then he finally goes on to say the difference is the difference between the temple of God and the temple of idols. Now God's temple or God's dwelling place or God's house was to be a holy house. Holy ordinances and holy laws made holy and righteous life was not following the lust of the flesh any longer, but the temple of idols in which they were trying to be a part of and having contact with was where sin and lewdness and debauchery and prostitutes and orgies was going on. And Paul was trying to say, now, how is there any agreement between God's temple, which is holy and called out and different from that and separate in righteousness? What concord, what agreement, what part can you actually find? Where is any agreement at all between those things? Because those temple of idols stood directly against what these individuals stood for. And so he was trying to let them know that there is no agreement. And you can never find any agreement. That's not to say that we shouldn't spend some time trying to bring people and, and convert them at all. But the Apostle Paul was warning them because he had saw in his writings and he was exasperated. Why was the Apostle Paul exasperated here? Because he had thought that being instilled with God's power would make them more powerful than these individuals. And yet, he saw a certain working by that spirit that was 
gradually drawing these individuals back in to their old temple worship and worship of idols. And Paul was exact. Also, Paul is showing us that there is, there is a possibility that being soundly converted and filled with God's Spirit, being in association with those that are vastly different and running with that crowd and trying to be like them and associate with them all the time, we're going to be pulled back into that instead of us pulling them into the presence of God. Now, you see, the difference is the compromise they made. See, the world does offer us a compromise. You do this with me. And if we're not careful, we'll be sucked in for that. with that. And we'll say, well, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. I can handle this. But you can't handle it on the devil's territory. You know, Christ was with sinners and all of that, but never one time did he let down on any commandment, compromise no place at all, and always brought them to higher places. But the Apostle Paul not only was exasperated, he could see the danger. I don't know for sure... Uh, knowing he was human, and we have to look at him as human, I don't know if the Apostle Paul ever recognized the danger of being in association with individuals after having once left that, as he did at this particular time. Because he was so exasperated by it, and then he began to lay down some laws and some things to let, it, let them know that you can't run with this crowd and be like them and expect them to and expect them to be one to your side. That's right. You can't do it. You can be friendly with the world. You can uh, work with the world, but you cannot run with the world right. and expect to gain them. So we get two commandments here from Paul. That's the reason I say I'm not sure of this. I'm just going along and reading Paul and knowing that he's human and seeing his exasperation here and then seeing the laws he laid down, I'm just assuming that the Apostle Paul saw maybe for the first time that it's dangerous for converted people to be in continual association with unconverted people. So he gives two commands. He said, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now there is a difference in communing and being in association with them than being yoked together with them. You become a part with them. You're yoked under the same yoke. And so if you're yoked under the same yoke, you're under the same master. Amen? Amen. Talk about, uh, Jesus says, take my yoke upon upon you for it's easy. And of course a lot of people say he's talking about the yoke that used to yoke the oxen together, but he wasn't. They used to put yokes on human beings and yes, work them together. Yes, and they were, any time two individuals were yoked together was a sure sign it was under obedience to the same master. Amen. And that's what he's trying to say right here. When you're yoked right. together with an unbeliever and you're yoked with him, that's a sure sign that you're both under the same master. Yes. And so this command, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he says, come out from among them. Now, we find that we have to associate in every department of life with the world. We find that we cannot, we can't be a monk. We can't go off someplace and be a hermit. So we have to be in association with them in all walks of our life. But he says, now listen, while you're there, be sure that you show them that you're different. Be sure that you let them know that you are not your own. That if you was your own, you'd be just like them. 
But somebody else has bought you. Somebody paid a price. And then you belong to him. And let them know that and not be yoked together. You can't be yoked together like that. Now, according to Paul's writings, it's the duty of a Christian to extricate themselves from all of this. The believers uh, move them from what they want. And in doing this, you have to observe two things, the nature of a separation. I think maybe this is why salvation or religion or church, uh, so to speak, is frowned upon. It's because there has been no separation, very little separation. Used to be when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and tears flowed down your cheeks and you was at the altar and you rose up and you was a different person and you knew it and everybody else knew it. Change came in your life. Not only did it come in our, your life, in the church, but in their life in the world. Now then a person can come, uh, heads owed back and hard heart, somebody be praying and just pray for them, and they say the sinner's prayer, and they can leave, never a change made in their life, nothing has changed in their life. In other words, there wasn't any separation. That was up to us to make the separation. The separation has to be voluntary. No preacher can drive it out of you amen nobody can cast it out of you it has to be voluntary you have to do it yourself you must break all the ties that bind you and that the bible tells us to agonize to enter in at the straight gate and not only must it be voluntary but it must be entire as the commandment touch not the unclean thing and there's nothing more unclean than sin and unclean is the essence the phase and the works and the influence of sin in our life. The Bible tells us, Paul told them, and we're told today that touch not the unclean thing. There's something about touching that which is unclean that contaminates us. Something about it now that just contaminates us. It's a, it's a, it's a willful act against God when he tells us not to touch it. And Eve was told not to eat of the tree. And it looked so good because the command had been said and told them, and it looked so good to them that uh, she just thought just disobedience to God is not going to mean that much. And you notice there is an encouragement, and this is what I like about the entire thing, and we're going to get to that. The encouragement to separation is this. Now, you have to have some encouragement to separate yourself from the world. In other words, some enticement. If God can't offer you anything any better than what's out there, then you best stay out there. So there has to be some reason why a person would separate himself from the world, and that reason is this. God says, I will receive you. And then notice what else he says. I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. Of all the titles, that God has and all the offices that he has filled I think the most personal one that he ever can possibly feel is the role of a father he becomes more personal to us in that role than any other role he feels I adore him as a king I stand in awe at his ability to be my savior I stand and look up to him and his ability to be my high priest. 
and the greatness of Almighty God sometimes respect commands and we stand there. But when he condescends so low that he says, if you will do away with all of these other things and move out from the unclean thing and not be a partaker of those unclean things, then I'm going to receive you. Now, what do you mean he's going to receive you? Hasn't he already received you? He said, I'm going to receive you and I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to be a father unto you. And you're going to be not servants, but you're going to be my sons and daughters. A personal relationship, God says, is yours if you'll do away with everything else out there and just look to me. Amen. I think that still awaits for a lot of us. Yes. A personal relationship as a father. Now, I don't know about a lot of children that's got very, very bad memories of a father, and maybe this wouldn't do much for them. But I've had good memories of a father. I had a father that had a lot of, lot of things in his life that wasn't right. He'd done the best he could. There was nine of us kids, 12 all together, three died. Nine of us doing poverty times, and he was trying to raise us. He'd be away from home a lot. And I watched my father as he uh, would haul limestone, and that's when you could just get about a load a day. And he'd go, he'd go to church, and he'd minister and he'd leave immediately right after church and go down there and sleep in his truck and wait. And I watched him as I, and I, he, some way, somehow, in all of his failures, he instilled in me a respect for him as my dad. I knew he would do anything in this world put a piece of bread in my mouth. I knew he would do without himself to see that I had clothes on my back and I've watched him do it a lot of times. And with all the failures he had and inabilities he had to bring himself, his body, his mind under complete control of God, there was still a respect I had for him as my father. And I thought, how much more do I have a heavenly father who is free from defects? There's nothing bad in him and no weaknesses in him and he has invited me to be his son or his, and you to be his daughter. What do we get from that? What can, what does a father do for his children? Well, you could go on and on with a lot of this, but number one, he loves them. Maybe that's why so many children are turned out like they do today, because they not have never known a father's love, and a lot of them don't know a mother's love, because they're too childish themselves. They've never learned how to love anybody but themselves. So you espouse a lot of children out there that really actually don't know the love of a father. And, of course, Satan knows this because this is the attraction that God gives for people to separate themselves from the world. And if they have never known the love of a father, this doesn't do much to entice them. You can see Satan's actions, can't you, all the way through, uh, far, far ahead of us. You can see why this world is in a turmoil like it is, and the attractions that God has had to offer has dimmed in your age and mine, where we're living now. The same things used to entice doesn't entice anymore, because people have never known the love. But a father loves, first of all, and uh, that, that's God's love. And once we get God's love, it's a fountain of all love in the universe. There is no love like God's love. I mean, the love of all parents, human parents, uh, just one drop in the bucket to the way God can love in our lives. Friend, the world needs love, doesn't it? If it needs anything in this world, the world needs love. 
And God is offering them that, not the love of some stranger, but God is offering us, if we will lay aside everything else, he is offering us the love of a father. Great God, creator of all mankind, who has need of nothing and no one, has said as an enticement to us, if you'll just throw all those things aside, I'll be a father to you. Now, what else does a father do? Well, if he's a good father at all, he'll do the best he can to educate his children. Give them the best he possibly can. And who can teach like God? Anybody know who can teach like God? Who can teach like God? He teaches the best lessons, teaches the lessons in the best way for the best end. And I'll tell you something else. Nobody can chastise like God. <laughs> Nobody can lay the whip on your back like God can. And nobody can turn right around and love you and let you know he did it for your own good like God can. He isn't just always that, that, that God that just gives you everything you want. He knows love doesn't live that way. He knows that love gives you what you need and he educates you in his way and gives you the best thing and teaches you the best lessons. And he does it in the best way, and it always comes out in the best end, if you let God do it. And he doesn't just teach the mind. You see, our fathers do that, and our teachers do that, but that just for the mind, for the soulish part of man, for temporal purposes. But what God teaches us are lessons that are eternal and purposes that are eternal that will reach us far beyond this veil of tears. Now what else does a, a father do? He guards his children. He get up in arms if anybody hurts them. And human parents can just guard our bodies to see that nobody hurts us. But God can guard our whole being. Thank God he can guard our whole being. He guards the soul. He guards the conscience from guilt. He guards the heart from impurity. He guards the intellect from error. He guards this whole bit. And what else does a father do? He provides for his children. Hallelujah. He provides for his children. The best that we can do as human parents is to see that our children are raised, nurtured, and being health and clothes put on their backs, food in their little bellies. That's the best we can do. But God goes further than that. He provides for us for an eternity. We can just make our children and make them healthy long enough to live the proposed 70 years or a little while longer. And then we've done all that we can do as human parents. But God loves us, gives us manna, food that strengthens us, cares for us and puts this spiritual robe of righteousness around us and takes care of us and prepares us for an eternity with him. Provisions far beyond what human parents can give us God has been able to give us. He is able. 
the Bible says to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, does that mean anything to you this morning? Now, you can ask for a lot, can't you? And you can think about a lot of things, but it says as a father, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. Again, I'm going to say of all the titles given him, Lord, that's a wonderful title, isn't it? Lord, but yet that signifies servitude. Master, and he is our master in a sense, but that still signifies servitude. King, that still signifies you being into subjection. High priest, people feared high priest and priest. All of those titles, Lord, Savior, all of those that we give him, and it's recorded down to the Bible, the most personal one. And God has invited us and said, I'll be a father to you. Now, friend, you can't get any closer to God than that. That's as close to God as you can get is to be his children, him to be your father. I want to just stop here. I've got some more. I want to just stop here long enough to just ask you to thank him with me this morning for that in your life and in your heart, for the privilege. He didn't have to, but he said this is an incentive. This is what I'm going to give you in the place of all of this other stuff that you've had, which is pleasurable just for a few moments. If you'll just cleanse yourself and don't touch the unclean thing, I'm going to give you the privilege of being my children. I'm going to be your father. Let's worship you, saints. Hallelujah. Let's worship you.